Okay, go ahead. Report. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, okay, everybody, welcome to week three of the Safadi Habura. Really, really pleased to see uh, everyone here. Um, just going to go through some housekeeping. So we're going to be sending out the program for the next two weeks in the WhatsApp group. So if anyone's not in the WhatsApp group, please uh, DM either myself or Avi Garson or just put your number in the uh, chat and then I'll, I'll be able to add you to that. Um, uh, next week's class is Rabbi Dweck doing part two of the Halakhic Framework. Part one was last week. If anybody missed it, please do reach out again so I can send over the recording. Um, uh, we're going to be, we're looking forward really to moving into the physical premises once lockdown eases. We don't know when that will be yet, but it's important to know that we're, for those in New York, in LA and elsewhere, we are going to be continuing the streaming even when we're, uh, when we're going physical. Um, another point I wanted to make quickly was with regards to, um, for a while we've been thinking, how can we represent the hachamim that really kind of uh, are the foundations of the Bet Midrash. So Avi and I have been thinking of different ways of doing it, but then today we came across a very interesting, um, it's not something that Avi's actually included in himself, um, a magazine that was put together by one of the Bet um, Midrash in, in London, where they had the evening base program of Neh, where they had some of the Talmudim presenting an idea from uh, a rabbi that they are fond of. Now, what I'm going to do is, and I've spoken with Rabbi Zek about this, there are about 10 to 12 hachamim, as I said, that really represent the ethos and value, values of the uh, Habura, from Rav Kook to Hakam Ovadia, Matlou Babadi, all the way to um, David Nieto, etc., etc., Hakam Sasportas. So I've already identified some of the Talmudim that I think would be perfect to uh, write on some of these hachamim. If anybody's interested to uh, contribute, uh, please, please do DM myself or Avi. Um, otherwise, we're just going to uh, assign people and enforce uh, them because I think uh, it will be a very, very, very useful exercise, not only to learn about these hachamim, but a good way to put it all together into one. Now, the reason we are all here, um, very, very, very exciting topic. It's a topic that I've been involved in a lot of discussions slash debates about, which is, you know, hashkafa halakha. Um, what is the connection? Do we have any examples where hashkafa impacts halakha? Uh, and I think we have an incredible, incredible uh, hacham, really, uh, not just a wise person, a dayan, who is involved in presenting uh, tonight's uh, session for us. And it's Dayan Ofer Livnat. Now, Dayan Livnat serves as a dayan on the Sfaradi Betin. And he's a graduate of the Eretz Hamda Institute for Advanced Jewish Studies in Yerushalayim. Uh, dayan Livnat teaches in a number of programs for training rabbis and dayanim including the Semecha and Dayanut programs, uh, which is run jointly by Eretz Hemda and the Montefiore Endowment in London. Uh, Dayan Livnat is a lecturer on Tanakh at the Jerusalem College, and he has previously served in an artillery unit in the IDF, uh, and he's currently studying for a PhD in Jewish studies at University College London. Uh, so you can see, even though Dayan Livnat is not a Sephardi, you can see he very much... Uh, represents the Western Safaradi approach with that kind of uh, uh, bio. Diane Livnat, thank you so, so much for being here and uh, the stage is yours. Okay, thank you, Sina. Thank you for the invitation. I feel very honored uh, to be able to speak to this Chabura. Um, so what we're going to, the topic for tonight is how the impact of Hashkafa on Halakha in the Rambam, the methodology of the Rambam, what we're going to focus on generally is more um, how the Rambam formulated mitzvot and how his hashkafa, his understanding of the reasons behind those mitzvot, impacted how he, where, how he categorized them, how he formulated them. Um, and so I'll give, I'll give a, a brief overview on that and then we'll, we'll get into two uh, very specific, interesting examples. And this is sort of the impact on hashkafa and al at the most fundamental level, but obviously when it's impacting there, then it has an effect all the way uh, um, to the details as well. So the, the, the content of this shiur is not, is not my own. It's all based on uh, writings of my Rosh Yeshiva of Nachum Rabinovich, who unfortunately passed away um, two months ago. And he, he really devoted himself. He was the Rosh Yeshiva in Maladumim, but previously, before that, he was a number of positions, including in London. He was the head of Jews College uh, in London. So some 
uh, many people in London uh, remember him from that time as well, and some of the Rabbanim, like for example, even uh, Rav Ilya from the SNP was a, a student of his and others as well. And he really devoted himself to the study of the Rambam, and he wrote a commentary on the Mishneh Torah of the Rambam called Yad Pshuta, which um, he covered, managed to cover almost half of, uh, approximately half of the Mishneh Torah, which is an incredible achievement. And he also wrote articles, and he, uh, in the yeshiva, he taught many years, both the Halakha of the Rambam, the Moren Nebuchim, all aspects. And I remember somebody once asked him, why, why did he choose to devote himself to the Rambam out of, why was that his devotion? And he gave an interesting answer that what was unique about the Rambam was that he wrote about the entire Torah, okay? And that's something that you see quite evident from the writings of the Rambam. When the issues that he wrote about, he sort of, it was meant to cover everything. So he started out with his commentary on the Mishnah, covering the entire corpus of the Mishnah, in which he also addresses all aspects of Halakha and Hashkafa, Jewish philosophy on outlook. Then he wrote Sefer HaMitzvot, which was meant to cover the entire 613 mitzvot. Afterwards, he wrote the Mishneh Torah, which is, you know, uh, since the Talmud, probably the most uh, outstanding achievement, there was a book of Halakha on the entire corpus of Halakha. Nobody has done it before and nobody has done it since. Even issues which are not practicals nowadays, including Korbanot, Tumavet he covered everything. And afterwards, he, and then we, and besides many chivot and various things else, as well, he wrote the Moren Ebuchim, the Guide to the Perplexed, in which he covers aspects of the Hashkafa. And you could argue to me, well, what about commentary on Tanakh, on Torah and Tanakh? Well, he did that also through the Moren Ebuchim, because a lot of what he deals with in the Moren Ebuchim is sort of giving us the codes, how to interpret Sukim, how to interpret the Nevi'im, how to interpret so many things. So he tried and succeeded in really as best as, it's, I don't know if even the, the expression humanly possible is correct, because it's, it's hard to imagine um, how a human could, a single human could achieve all of that. Um, but to, to really try to cover as much as possible, to give an entire outlook on the Torah. And when we say that he gave an entire outlook on the Torah, it's not just that he dealt with different things, but also there's a unity to his thought. And this is sometimes there's this sort of misconception that the Rambam of the Moren Nevuchim is a different Rambam than that of the Mishneh Torah. And one of the things that uh, Rav Rabinovich he demonstrates in his writings is that there is a unity to the thought. And that's what we'll see tonight, that there is, even though there are different perspectives and different formulations between the different books, but it's all consistent. There is a, a coherence uh, to it, and there is a unity to the thought of the Rambam, and the Rambam was one. And when you study the Rambam as one, and that means that when, let's say you're studying a certain topic, a certain mitzvah, whatever it is, in the Rambam, then you need to look at all of his writings. And this is what he does in his commentary on the Mishneh Torah. He brings in from what the Rambam wrote in his Perusha Mishnah, what he wrote in Sefer HaMitzvot, what he wrote in Moren Nevuchim, what he wrote in his Chuvot, and sometimes he'll even bring from writings of the Rambam, but the Rambam also had writings just on medicine, which can also sometimes connect and fit in and explain to you things that he wrote in his other writings. And when, when you take that perspective, then it brings tremendous clarity to, uh, to understanding the Rambam. By the way, if anybody wants to ask questions, interlude, feel free to, to do so, open up your mics, or you can type in the chat box as well. Okay, so now let's get into the issue of mitzvot. Okay, why, why, is, why was the issue of defining the mitzvot important to the Rambam? So I'll just give a brief overview on the issue of counting the mitzvot that we have. So we know very famously, Chazal told us that there are Tariyadi mitzvot, 613 mitzvot. The problem is, it, it appears in the Talmud, it appears in Midrashim, it seems to be quite a un, unanimous, uh, there seems to be quite a consensus on it that there are 613 mitzvot, out of which Chazal told us that there are what we call Ramach mitzvot aseh, 248 positive mitzvot, and Shasa mitzvot lot aseh, 365 prohibitions, negative mitzvot, in other words, mitzvot that are telling us that things that are prohibited, why 248 and 365? So the Gemara says 248, that's 248 limbs in a human body, and 365, because in a solar year, uh, there are 365 days. 
but they didn't tell us what those 613 mitzvot are. They threw the number out there, but they never specified what those 613 mitzvot are. So in the times of the Geonim, the Geonim started comprising lists, trying to figure out what these uh, 613 mitzvot were. And many did, the, many did this. We have the Baal Alachot Gdolot, who wrote a Minyana Mitzvot. We have Rav Sadia Gaon, who wrote two Sifrei Mitzvot. One is an actual book, and one is more of a piyut, a short poem. We have Rabbi Shlomo Ibn Gibirol. And it was, it was quite a popular exercise in the times of the Geonim to write mitzvot, to, to try to come up with the 613 mitzvot. What's interesting and, uh, and different about the way the Geonim counted mitzvot is that they didn't divide it into two groups, like Chazal. In other words, they didn't have 248 mitzvot and 365 mitzvot Rather, they divided up all the mitzvot into four categories. Okay, they had mitzvot they had mitzvot lo but not by those numbers of 248 and 365. Besides that, they also had a third category, which they called parashiyot, okay, which is a whole question what they even meant by that. Not so clear. And they also had a fourth category of onashim. Okay, so for whatever reason, even though they accepted the, the 613 mitzvot of Chazal, they, they didn't follow the division of Chazal as the 248 positive and 365 negative. Why they did that, very interesting question. Uh, challenging. The Rambam came along and he said that he also wants to comprise a list of Sefer Mitzvot. Why does he want to comprise a list of Sefer Mitzvot? And he, he writes in his introduction to his Sefer Mitzvot, I'm planning to write the Mishneh Torah to cover the entire Torah. How am I going to ensure that I cover everything? How can I, I'm a, you know, you're going to write on the entire Torah. How are you not going to leave out any subject? How are you going to ensure that you'll cover everything. So he says, if I'll first make a list of the 613 mitzvot, that will encompass sort of the, the entire Torah at the basic level. And based on that, I'll be able now to, to go ahead and write my Mishneh Torah. But he says, I can't accept any of these lists of the Geonim that listed the 613 mitzvot. Why? Because he felt that the lists of the Geonim were not systematic at all. They were just writing down mitzvot and he claims and he critiques them heavily all throughout Sefer HaMitzvot. He says they're not counting mitzvot in any sort of systematic fashion. For example, let's say one of his, it seems like a very simple critique of the mitzvot of the Geonim, but for example, one of the things he says, that they listed mitzvot de Rabbana. Like for example, you can find the Baal Alachot Gdolot, he lists the mitzvah of reading Megillat Esther on Purim as a, as a mitzvah. The Rambam says, how can you do that? It says, Tariyad mitzvot, Nihnu Moshe Besinai. These are 613 mitzvot giving at Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai. Megillat Esther is many generations later. You can't list that in the 613 mitzvot. So he says, you, that's for example, that's a very simple and obvious example. How can you list mitzvot de Rabbanan? And he has a whole list of uh, critiques on, on the, on the, uh, the, the minyanei mitzvot of the Geonim. So what does he do? So in his introduction to Sefer HaMitzvot, he comes up with 14 rules um, and these 14 rules are 14 rules how you count mitzvot. In other words, essentially, there are 14 rules which guide you how you categorize a mitzvah, how you define a mitzvah. And he deals with the dairy. It's, 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 it's really it's something fascinating to study, these 14 rules of sefer, that he lists there in Sefer HaMitzvot. And he says, based now that I've established these 14 rules, I now can go ahead and produce my own list of mitzvot which again will encompass, and he does follow Chazal, and his list of Sefer HaMitzvot has 248 mitzvot aseh, 365 mitzvot lot aseh, exactly like Chazal said. Okay, now you'll tell me, well, this is, it's, it's too good to be true. How could you come up with 14 rules? Again, you're taking 14 rules that he's, he's come up with, genius. And he's, you know, placing these 14 rules on the Torah and magically are going to sprout out exactly 613 mitzvot by 248 mitzvot and 613 mitzvot you know, it seems like uh, too good to be true. So obviously the Rambam is working with a target in mind and he has to reach that target. And even at, if you accept all the Rambam's 14 rules, there are still all kinds of decisions uh, that are made along the way, which you could, you could have gone you know, maybe a different way, but again, the Rambam has to reach his goal of 613. 
Okay. So that's what, what he does. By the way, I'll just an uh, interesting side note. Um, uh, this is something that Rev. Binovich also points out in his writing, that apparently the Rambam was very fond of the number 14, because he has 14 rules in Sefer HaMitzvot, how to define a mitzvah. What else does he have 14 by? Anybody know? Where else does the number 14 is divided up into 14 books. Where else do we have 14? Anybody know? Another place that we have 14, this is something that we're going to deal with tonight, the Rambam in the Moreh Nevuchim, when he's dividing up the mitzvot based on ta'amea mitzvot, in other words, the reasons behind the mitzvot, he divides up the mitzvot again into 14 categories based on the reasoning of the mitzvot. This is in the third the section of the Moreh Nevuchim from chapter 35 onwards. He divides up all the mitzvot. Again, this is a different uh, division to 14 based on the Tamea mitzvot, the reasons behind the mitzvot, divides up the mitzvot into 14 categories. Okay, so there again, we see the number 14. Now you'll ask me a very obvious question. There is one place, the, probably the most famous list of the Rambam, where he doesn't have 14. What is that? Principles. 13 principles of faith. Why is it 13 and not 14? How could he get that wrong? Everything else he has 14. Why the principles of faith only 13? So the answer Robert Binovich gave is very interesting. He says that actually, contrary to popular belief, there is a 14th principle of faith. What is that? In Hilchot Shuvah, which is the place in the Mishneh Torah where the Ramah discusses many of the principles of faith, um, he says there that the Bechira Chofshit, free will of a person, in other words, that's a fundamental principle which you cannot accept other principles of faith if you don't accept it. In other words, let's say one of the principles of faith is that there is reward and punishment, but there's no place for reward and punishment if, if people don't have free will, and some of the others as well. So he says, there we find our, our 14th uh, uh, principles of faith. By the way, just uh, it, it's interesting. He wasn't the first one to come up with this. Um, Rabbi Yoshua Nagid, who was a great grandson of the Rambam, and often he was asked questions about the Rambam, both understanding the Rambam and not only, he was very often asked regarding the what is the correct Gilisai in the Rambam, because Rabbi Yoshua Nagid still had the original copy of the Mishneh Torah. So many people, we have many chuvot of his, that people would ask him, can you tell me what is the correct nusach, the correct text in this halacha? And he would write to them, you know, I checked in the original random script on the Rambam. So he was asked once, why is the Rambam fond of the number 14? So he gave also a clever answer. It doesn't really explain, but it's a clever mnemonic. He said that if we take the 248 mitzvot and the 365 mitzvot lo so 2 plus 4 plus 8 adds up to 14, and also 3 plus 6 plus 5 also adds up to 14. So there you get, you have a little bit of a, a hint for the 14. Okay, cute. Okay, so now, but now let's go on. So now what happened here, is, now happened something very interesting. After the Rambam listed all 613 mitzvot in Sefer HaMitzvot, and in Sefer HaMitzvot the list is he doesn't just list the mitzvot, but he explains what, what pasukim he's basing the mitzvot on, where he's basing it on Chazal, in the, in the Gemara, in the Midrash Al-Cha, wherever it is, what he's basing it on, this is a mitzvah. So he has there, that's his first list of mitzvot. But after that, he doesn't end there, but he has, he has further lists of mitzvot. In other words, what happens then when he comes to write the Mishneh Torah, in the introduction to the Mishneh Torah, he again lists all the mitzvot in the same order that he listed them in Sefer HaMitzvot, but in an abbreviated version, very briefly what the mitzvah is, and maybe just a brief source where the pasuk that it's listed in. Then, that's the second time. Then he has a third list of the mitzvot, and that is in the headings to each of the halachot. For example, let's say um, he's writing, let's say, Hilchot Shabbat, on Shabbat. So Shabbat has several mitzvot that are encompassed in Ilchot Shabbat, because you have, on the one hand, the positive mitzvah to rest on Shabbat. You have the mitzvah of Zachor, to remember Shabbat. 
you also have the negative mitzvah, that you cannot do work on Shabbat. So you have a whole list of mitzvot, which are all part of Hilchot Shabbat. So in the headings for Hilchot Shabbat, again, he lists all the mitzvot pertaining to that subsection of Achot. So all throughout the Mishneh Torah, at the title head of each halachot, he lists which mitzvot are relevant to this section of halachot. So essentially, you have here again a list of all the mitzvot. Okay, again, but this time it's not arranged in the same order that it was arranged previously, but it's arranged based on where each mitzvah belongs to which section of halachot. And this is in the titles of the halachot. And then very often we have a fourth time where he mentions the mitzvah, and that is in the halachot itself, here we will again often repeat the mitzvah. Now, okay, sounds great. What's the problem? The problem is that often, I don't know how often, but in not, not few places, the formulation changes. In other words, there seems to be inconsistencies. For example, he'll define sefer mitzvot one way. It could be that he'll change the formulation in the Minyana Mitzvot HaKatsar, the brief list in the beginning of Mishneh Torah, he'll change it. He'll, he could change it again in the title's head to the Arachot, and then in the Arachot itself, he could change it again the fourth time. Sometimes you have a mitzvah which is formulated in four different ways, and they don't always seem to be consistent. Sometimes there are inconsistencies, even can be some, some very glaring discrepancies between the formulations. So the question is, why is that? So how do, you, how, do you, how do you approach to resolve such a problem? So one method, which is sort of, you know, the more common method that existed because, you know, commentators picked up on these differences is to sort of try to address each case. In other words, I'm studying this mitzvah. Let's see what, what's happening here. Why did he formulate an incestual mitzvot one way, here differently, and, you know, try to somehow resolve the contradictions. What Rebbeinovich does in his commentary, Yad Pshita, is, he, and this is, he, he dedicated a special volume just to the list of mitzvot. And what he does there is try to see whether there's a method to the madness. In other words, all these discrepancies, instead of trying to answer each one on its own, maybe we can come up with sort of a general understanding what the Rambam was trying to achieve in each list. And based on that, instead of resolving you know, one contradiction, maybe you can give an answer which will solve 20 contradictions. Because if you sort of understand, again, the Rambam has these four different lists. What's his goal in these different lists? He's not just coming to repeat himself. He has a certain agenda in mind. And once you understand what he was trying to achieve in each list, maybe that can explain to you why all these mitzvot are, um, were defined one way here and a different way in this other list. And that's what, what he does there. And his findings are quite incredible. And, and that's what we'll see tonight, um, how, that, how, that, how that changed. And often it is connected to uh, the Rambam's understanding of the reasons behind the mitzvot as they appear in the Moren Nebuchim. Okay, so that's what we'll try to uh, go into now. Okay, so I'm going to share with you uh, the source pages that I prepared. Okay, so the one, the first thing that that he does uh, in his commentary on on the list of mitzvot of the Rambam is something is something quite amazing. Basically, as I mentioned earlier, if you look at the first two lists of the Rambam, the one, the longer one that appears in Sefer Mitzvot, and uh, the shorter one that appears at the, at the uh, beginning of the Mishneh Torah, again, it just lists 248 positive mitzvot and then 365 negative mitzvot. And the order there does not correspond to the order as they appear in the Mishneh Torah. In other words, once he arranges them in the Mishneh Torah, it does not correspond to the order that he arranged them in Sefer HaMitzvot. So the question is, was he just listing a mitzvot here, 248 mitzvot? By what order was he trying to do that? So Rabbi Noach there analyzes the list of mitzvot in Sefer HaMitzvot, 
and he tries to see whether there's a certain logic to the order. And what he comes up with is that actually the order of, and this here I brought here in the chart, just the order of the Rambam on the 248 positive mitzvot, okay? But he also does this with the negative mitzvot in his writings. But what he comes up with is that the 248 mitzvot are actually arranged by groups of mitzvot as they correspond to the reasons of the mitzvot that the Rambam listed in the Morenebuchi. Okay, so this is what I brought here, the list of mitzvot, and below it, uh, chapter 35 in, in section three of the Morenebuchim, where the Rambam divides up the mitzvot into these 14 groups based on reasons. Okay, now it's, it's not arranged in the same order uh, of the 14 sections, but it is arranged um, by sort of groups. And his analysis here is quite incredible. I, I can't say that it fits in 100%. There are maybe a few mitzvot which in Sefer mitzvot don't seem to completely fit, but overall it works very well. So I'll just give you some examples of what I'm talking about. So for example, the Rambam says in the Moren Nebuchim, his first sort of group of mitzvot under uh, a certain category. So he says, okay, again, the Rambam wrote this in Arabic, so um, there are various translations. So here I put here, not necessarily, I just put in, you know, what I have in a digital format, but these aren't necessarily the best translations of it. Um, but I, I took the Moren Nebuchim um, from the, the Ibn Tibon translation, which is in the Bari Lan Responsa, and the Guide to the Perplexed Translation, what appears on the Safaria website. But I think there are some better translations than this, but for our purposes, it's sufficient. Okay, so he says, uh, again, first group of mitzvot, a mitzvot asher hem deot shorshiot. Okay, so these are mitzvot which form fundamental, fundamental principles, or what he's talking about really here is beliefs. In other words, there are certain mitzvot that relate or try to educate you on, or maybe directly tell you what you should believe in. Okay, now for each group of mitzvot here in the Moran Nebuchim, he also tells you where it's found in the Mishneh Torah. So he says, Okay, so Yilchot Yisodei Torah is writing in the beginning of the Mishneh Torah, in the Sefer Hamada, Sefer Hamada, again, the book of knowledge. Okay, so that's the book that primarily deals with belief. And all the mitzvot listed in Yilchot Yisodei Torah, believe in God and others, and then let's say in Sefer Hamada, you have other mitzvot connected to this as well. Um, these are the ones listed there. And he says, Okay, so he says also the mitzvah of tshuva, repentance, is a mitzvah which teaches you about fundamental beliefs. And also ta'aniyot, ta'aniyot are fasts, is also a mitzvah. Fast days are also a mitzvah which teaches you about fundamental beliefs. Okay, and tshuva and ta'aniyot are actually the two mitzvot that I want to discuss. But let me, let me just ask you an interesting question. Hilchot Shuva appears also in Sefer Ramadah, the Book of Knowledge. So that fits in with what the Rambam is saying, that Hilchot Shuva is connected to beliefs, beliefs, the Book of Knowledge, very good. Where does Hilchot Ha'aniyot appear? Anybody know? In what, what book in Mishneh Torah does Hilchot Ha'aniyot appear? appear? I'm sorry? Zmanim. Zmanim, correct. Now, it appears in the Book of Zmanim. Zmanim is the book where I have Hilchot Shabbat, the Chagim, Pesach, Yom Kippur, everything else. Why does the Ilchot Aniot appear in the book of Zmanim? Why does it appear, appear there if, if you would follow Ta'amea Mitzvot, the reason of the Mitzvot, Ta'aniot for whatever reason seems to belong more in Sefer Amada. Why did the Rambam locate it in Sefer Zmanim? Anybody can suggest uh, an explanation? Because he connects it to Shofarot. He connects it to? To Shafarot and Chatzotzot. Chatzotzot, correct. But, but why, is that, why does that explain why it's located in Sefer Zmanim? Isn't, isn't the Chatzotzot uh, based off of the times, meaning whenever an event would come up, they would, they would raise the horns? Actually, the Chatzotzot were not so much based on... Um, I mean, it was based on the Chagim, but that was the Chatzotzot uh, during the holidays. 
Okay. Yeah, chapsatzot appears also when, when there's times of trouble. But again, think about more of the logic. When you're talking about fast days, why does it make sense to put that in Sefer's Manim? I think the answer is a bit more technical. So I think the answer is very simply as possible. All of the book of Zmanim is essentially dealing with special days, right? It has to do with the calendar. So ultimately, you have Shabbat, you have the Chagim, etc. So ultimately, from a practical perspective, even though from a philosophical perspective, maybe the Taniyot belong in Sefer HaMadah for whatever reason, okay, which I hope we'll discuss later, but from a practical perspective, it makes sense to put Taniyot fast days in the Book of Zmanim, which is essentially the book that deals with everything in the calendar. So you can already begin to see why there can be a bit of a shift between how he categorized this a mitzvah in the Moreh Nebuchim, where he's focused specifically on the reasoning behind the mitzvah. And in that regard, Taniyot appears uh, uh, together with the fundamental beliefs because of his understanding of the fast days. On the other hand, the Mishneh Torah, where he's speaking about practical lacha, so he'll group it in the group of mitzvot, which deals with zmanim, times, which have to do with whatever appears on the calendar. Let me give you just another example for that. Would anybody here know where the mitzvah of not shaving your, uh, shaving the hair, shaving your beard with a blade appear? Where does that appear in the Mishneh Torah? Anybody? Ilchot Avodah correct. Why does it appear in Ilchot Avodah yeah, Ezra. Did you believe it was a pagan ritual? Exactly. So the Rambam says in Moreh Nebuchim that his understanding, again, it's, it's hard to see where in the Psukim necessarily, but the Rambam's understanding was that the prohibition of shaving with a blade was because that was the uh, practice of, of the pagans and therefore it's connected to idolatry. And based on his understanding of Tamiya Mitzvot, he put it in Ilchot Avodazara in the Mishneh Torah. Excellent, fantastic. So there I have a location of Mitzvah purely based on Tamiya Mitzvot. Now let's go back to our source pages, and we'll see, for example, another mitzvah connected to idolatry, but not placed there. So he says here, uh, here the second class compromises the uh, So this second group of mitzvot is everything that has to do with idolatry. This is what's listed in Hilchot which is again, found in Sefer HaMadav, the Book of Knowledge, because refraining from idolatry is connected to the proper belief in one God. But then he says, So he says, the laws concerning the garments of linen and wool, concerning the fruits of the trees in the first three years after they being planted, and concerning divider seeds in the vineyard are also in this class. Okay, so let's think about this example. Okay, we have a certain law not to eat ola, which means you can't eat from the fruit of the tree in the first three years. According to the Rambam, the reason behind this mitzvah is because it has to do something to an idolatrous practice. Where, however, does it appear in the Mishneh Torah? Anybody know where the laws of ola, in which book in Mishneh Torah it appears? Sorry, anybody know where ola appears in the Mishneh Torah? So Ola appears in the book of Zra'im, okay? The book of Zra'im is the book that has everything to do with agriculture. Now, most of the mitzvot in the book of Zra'im are not related to Avodah For example, the mitzvah to give a corner of your field to the poor. That belongs to the mitzvot, which have to do with charity, etc. Why did the Rambam put Ola, not eating from the fruits of the first three years, which is really connected more to Avodah based on Tamiya Mitzvot. Why did he put it in the book of Zra'im, the book of plantings? Again, practical considerations, because he has one book devoted to everything that has all the mitzvot that have to do with agriculture. So he puts them all together, even though in terms of Tamiya Mitzvot, which is what appears in the Moran Nebuchim, he'll actually take the Ola and move it into Avodah Zara, because based on Tamiya Mitzvot, that's where it belongs. Okay, so we're already beginning to, to see a little bit how the different categorizations, at least here, between the Mishneh Torah and the Moran Nebuchim, there is a logic. In other words, if he can, he'll group the mitzvot just based on Tamea mitzvot, the reasons. 
But sometimes there are other considerations which are requiring shifting in certain mitzvot that really under Tamiya mitzvot belong in one place, while he'll shift them to another place due to sort of the more practical thinking, the practical guidance approach that, that, that is, is behind the, the, how he's, how he's uh, structuring the Mishneh Torah. Okay, so now let's go back to Sefer HaMitzvot. So we said the Ramam has a list of 630 mitzvot, and Sefer HaMitzvot, you just list them in order, 248 mitzvot what's the, um, what's the logic in that list? Okay, so here, and this is what I brought briefly, you can see that actually that corresponds quite nicely to the 14 categories in the Morei Nevuchim. Okay, and this is what he shows, Rebbe so, for example, you can go through it and, and check this out. So it's really fascinating how well it works. Again, not 100%, but close to 100%. So, for example, one through nine mitzvot all belong to the first class, the fundamental beliefs. The next group, 10 to 19, all belong to the ninth group of mitzvot, which has to do with the different worships, like tefillah, tefillin, etc., everything that belongs to that. Then you have the, the next group, 10 to 38, 20 to 38, belongs to everything that has to do with the Beit HaMikdash, the temples, which is another group on its own in the Moren Nebuchim. Again, it's not in the same order as it appears in the Nebuchim, but it's, it follows the same division. And if you go through it, it actually works quite well. So this is quite unbelievable that already in Sefer HaMitzvot, which was written quite earlier by the Rambam, um, well before he wrote the Moren Nebuchim, he's already thinking by the same a framework that he's thinking in Moren Nebuchim, and he's arranging the mitzvot and grouping the mitzvot based on sort of the same types of categorizations that he later writes in the Moren Nebuchim uh, in Ta'amea Mitzvot. Again, it's not in the same order as one, two, three, four, but it does follow uh, these groups. Okay. This, this is sort of the general groupings. You could have a specific mitzvah that could move in between groups. Uh, for reasons that, that we'll soon see. Okay, so now what we'll try to do in the time we have left is to tackle two such mitzvot that um, sort of shift both in how they're defined and also sort of what group they're located in between Sefer mitzvot and then going into the other list of mitzvot. And we'll try to show how how the Rambam's hashkafan, that mitzvot, uh, sort of how it influenced how the Rambam uh, categorized the mitzvah. Okay, so the first mitzvah that we'll deal with is the mitzvah of tshuva, the mitzvah of repentance. And here, this, this is probably the most famous contradiction uh, between how the Rambam formulates the mitzvah. And many, many commentators deal with this question, including there's a very, um, in the book of uh, Rav Soloveitchik, uh, Al HaTshuva, he has a very famous uh, piece there that he deals with this uh, this contradiction as well, and this is probably one of the most, probably the most famous contradiction that we have between Sefer HaMitzvot uh, and uh, in the Mishneh Torah, how Rambam formulates the Mitzvah. Okay, so without further ado, let's see it. Okay. So in Sefer HaMitzvot, the Rambam says as follows. Okay, this is Mitzvah Taseh Ein Gimel, 73. Okay, and keep that in mind because we'll go back to that. Why is it number 773? Okay, so he says, Okay, I apologize. I, I couldn't find uh, an English translation of Sefer Mitzvot, so I only have here the Hebrew. Um, but I'll just translate it. He says, the 73 mitzvah, is the mitzvah to confess our sins that we have sinned before God and to say the confession together with the tshuva. Okay, so the Rambam is seemingly formulating the mitzvah as the vidui, which is the confession of the sin. Okay, it's not a confession before a priest, this is a confession that you do uh, before God. The kavanatoshi omar ana Hashem, chatati aviti vepashati vasiti kach vekach. In other words, that you say, you call out to Hashem, and then you say, I have sinned, and this is, you have to specify what you've done. And then he should ask for forgiveness. Okay? And he says, 
שאפילו החטאים שחייבים עליהם אלו המינים מן הקורבנות הנזכרים, שאמר יתעלה שמי שהקריבם יתכפר לו, הנה לא יספיק לו אם הקרבתם בלתי הווידוי. אוקיי, okay, now he says that even if it's a sin for which you are required to offer a sacrifice to atone for that sin, because we know there's a whole list of sins for which you would bring a korban chatat, there are other sins for which you bring a korban asham, different types of sacrifices for different types of sins. So do not think that by these sins I've offered the korban, the sacrifice, and that's it, I don't need to do any further. Even for these which are offering sacrifices, you also have to do the vidui, the confession. Okay, so he brings the source for the mitzvah, and the source for the mitzvah is a pasuk that appears regarding a certain korban. <coughs> and there it says that when you bring the korban, uh, and then it says in the next pasukim, the korban that you're supposed to bring. So really what the Rambam here is doing is something very clever. Because really, if you look in the Psukim, and this is something that now he'll, he'll describe quite in detail, the mitzvah vidui, the mitzvah confession, appears only when, only when, only when you're bringing a korban. That's where it appears in the Psukim. In other words, when I bring such a korban, then I need to do the vidui to confess. However, what the Rambam is saying, again, he's not making this up based on Chazal, but he's saying the mitzvah vidui applies anytime you sin not necessarily connected to the korban. Aye, so why is it in the psukim does it appear only by a korban? So he's giving you a very clever answer. He's saying, because if I'm bringing a korban, I would have thought that I don't need to confess. I'm bringing the korban, the sacrifice, that's enough. I don't need to do anything beyond that. Says no, even if you're bringing the korban, don't think that you know, you've paid your dues and that's it, you still have to do the confession. And certainly if it's a sin for which uh, no, no korban applies, that you would also need to do the confession. Okay, and that's what he goes on to continue to explain here, how in all cases, whether it's a sin that there is no punishment for, whether it's a sin that you bring a korban for, even a sin that you're getting punished for, even a sin that you get capital punishment for, it doesn't matter. You always have to do the vidui, confess your sins before Hashem. Okay, so based on this, we would say, what is the mitzvah? The mitzvah is confession, vidui. Okay, if we go now to the Minyana Mitzvot HaKatsar, again, the brief list of mitzvot, which appears at the introduction of the Rambam to the Mishneh Torah. So how does he list the mitzvah? Very briefly, he says, Okay, in other words, that he says the mitzvah is to confess your sins before God, as it says, he shall confess the wrong that he's done. And again, uh, I think that the translation is missing out here a few words, but it, that it should be In other words, the confession must be done whether when you're bringing a sacrifice and even when you're not bringing a sacrifice. So he just mentions it very briefly that it applies whether you're bringing a korban or whether you're not, you always have to confess your sins. Where does the big change apply? The big change comes in the title head until now, he's defined the mitzvah as just the vidui, the confession. In the title head to Ilchot he says as follows, Ilchot Mitzvah So again, this is standard. Every time he introduces Alachot, he tells you how many, mitzvot, how many mitzvot it contains. In this case, it only contains one mitzvah. And what is the mitzvah? So here the mitzvah is that a person should repent before Hashem and confess. And the explanation of this mitzvah and also the fundamental principles of beliefs that are connected to this mitzvah of the tshuva are explained in Yilchot Tshuva. And that's why, as I mentioned, Yilchot Tshuva, he also deals with some of the principles of faith, like the Motor Mashiach, Zachar Ve'onish, etc., because all of that ties into the mitzvah of tshuva. So here, all of a sudden, he's shifted his definition of mitzvah. Until now, he, all he spoke about was just the confession. Now the mitzvah seems to be to do tshuva, to repent, and confess. Now moving to the halachot. 
what does he say in the Lachorot? פרק א' הלכה א', he says, כל מצוות שבתורה, בין עשה בין לא תעשה, אם עבר על דם על אחת מהם, בין בית זדון בין שגרה, שיעשה תשובה וישוב מחטאו, חייב להתוודות לפני האל ברוך הוא. We're back to vidun. No words. Here again he's defining the mitzvah as when you do tshuva, then the mitzvah is that you have to do vidui and confess your sins before God. So, which is it? Three times in Sefer HaMitzvot, Minyan HaMitzvot HaKatsar, and in the Alachot, the Rambam only speaks about when he's defining the mitzvah as vidui, confession. In the title head to the Alachot, all of a sudden the mitzvah includes In other words, in those cases, tshuva is just sort of when do you need to do vidui, obviously, after you, you've repented for the sin, because if you're not repenting, you know, the vidui is just words, it's meaningless. So obviously, when do you do the vidui? When you've decided to repent from your sin. But the actual mitzvah is the vidui. But in the title head to the ilchot tshuva, what is the mitzvah? To do tshuva. So which one is it? Okay. So how do we answer that question? So I'll ask you to check the following. <clears throat> we, I mentioned that the mitzvah vidui is listed where? In which number? Number 73, okay? Now, go back to our first list that I put at the beginning. Number, and tell me number 73 Under which category does it appear? If you look at Sefer HaMitzvot, where is number 73 located? Sacrifices. Sacrifices, under Korbanot. Now, why is it listed, why is it grouped under Korbanot? I see people are writing in the chat. Oh, um, why is it listed under Korbanot? It's, from Tamea Mitzvot, Ilchot Shuvah belongs to fundamental principles. Why would the Rambam in Sefer HaMitzvot listed under Korbanot? What would be the possible reason for that? Why would he group it under Korbanot? Any suggestions? That's the context that it's brought in the Torah. Fantastic. Exactly. So here, look at what happened here. The Mitzvah Vidui as it's listed in the Psukim, appears within the context of Korbanot. The Rambam, however, is explaining that it's not regulated only to Korbanot, but it actually applies even without Korbanot. So now, let's understand the logic here. What's the Rambam's main goal in Sefer HaMitzvot? The Rambam's main goal in Sefer HaMitzvot is to try to show you how from the Torah Shebikhtav come out 613 mitzvot based on the principles that he's decided, how you define a mitzvah. But it all has to be 613 mitzvot stated in the Torah. So he's trying to show you how these mitzvot, where they're found in the psukim. So there in the, in the Sefer HaMitzvot, he's listing the mitzvot based on how they're categorized in the psukim. And vidui, the mitzvah vidui in the psukim is only found by a korbanot. When you bring a korban, you have to do the vidui. You have to confess your sins. So that's how he's defining it in Sefer HaMitzvot. And that's why in Sefer HaMitzvot, it's always appearing as the mitzvah vidui, because really all the Torah said was, do vidui. It doesn't say anywhere in the Torah as a mitzvah. It, the, tshuva, the Torah speaks about tshuva, but it doesn't speak about tshuva as a mitzvah at all. As a mitzvah, as it formulated as a command, only appears vidui. And that appears by sacrifices. So that's why the Rambam locates it there. Now, he's coming to the Mishneh Torah. What's he trying to achieve by his list of mitzvot in the Mishneh Torah? Essentially, he's using his list of mitzvot to be the building blocks of the halachot. Okay? In other words, he wants each mitzvah or each, or each number of mitzvot to sort of be a building block on which he can teach you a whole set of halachot. So in this regard, a mitzvah creates a whole category under which you can subsume a group of halachot. Okay? So on some mitzvot, it's very easy to do. Like, for example, the Torah says, don't do work on Shabbat. So I can now have a whole set of halachot Shabbat 
what, what is defined as work and everything that is prohibited. But on some mitzvot, you have to be a little bit more clever. So the Rambam is saying as follows. The Torah said that a person needs to confess a sin. But now here's where we sort of had to add the third component of Hashkafat. When the Torah says you need to confess your sins, what is essentially included in that? The confession is sort of just the, the end, the culmination of a process. But really, the confession of the sin, there is a whole process that goes into that. And what is that process? That is the tshuva. And the tshuva is a whole process where you understand your sin, you understand that you have free will, you understand the responsibility for your actions, you understand where you want to bring yourself in your life in terms of the ultimate goal. And this is where it connects into so many things of understanding what the goal of a person is in life, the world to come, life and death. All of that is encompassed in this idea of tshuva. That's why tshuva is connected into fundamental beliefs. So when the Torah is telling us, confess your sins, it seems to be something very simple, but there's a whole world behind it. There's a whole world of hashkafa philosophy behind this idea in the process that ultimately ends up with you calling out to Hashem to confess your sins, to say, I've sinned and I want to repent, I want to be forgiven. And there's a whole set of halachot subsumed under that. So when he's taking this mitzvah into the Mishneh Torah, he's not staying just with the formulation as it appears in the Psukim, which is what sort of defined his path in his first two Minenei Mitzvot, but rather he's changing it into this whole title head of Du Tshuva and Confess Your Sins. And under that now, he can include the whole set of halachot that go into the process of tshuva, not just the vidui, but everything that goes into tshuva, which is the first uh, three or four chapters in Ilkhot Tshuva. And also from there, he can expand onto the, all the fundamental beliefs that are included in this idea of tshuva, which is what he does from chapters approximately five through uh, 10 in Ilkhot Tshuva, because again, He's now formulating the mitzvah in a broader sense as an entire category uh, under which he can subsume a set of arachot. Okay, uh, now we don't have much time left, so I'll try to do very quickly uh, the second example. And this is the example, this is in this case, it's even more striking, I think, than Yulchot uh, This is the example of the mitzvah of the chatzotzot, the mitzvah of blowing the horns. Okay, not the shofarot, but rather chatzotzot, the trumpets blowing the trumpets. Where do we find this in the Torah? So we have it in Sefer Bemidbar. Parashat Baalotcha. So we have, in, in the Midbar we know they blew the trumpets, you know, just to tell them when they need to travel, when they need to stop. But that's not a mitzvah because that was something, that's not what we call a mitzvah lidorot. That was something that only applied when they were traveling the desert. It's not a mitzvah for eternity. And we, in Sayyad mitzvot, we only list eternal mitzvot. But it, the trumpets do have uses for future generations. And it says there in Sefer Bamidbar, Perek Yud, it says, so one situation where I need to blow the trumpets is when a war comes. And now you want to uh, be saved, be remembered uh, before Hashem and be saved for your enemies. So blow the trumpets. Okay. Second situation where you need to blow the trumpets is Second place, like second time that you need to blow the trumpets is on your holidays, when you're offering sacrifices in the Beit HaMikdash in the temple, you should also blow the trumpets again to be remembered before God. So essentially we have two times that we need to blow the mitzvot. One is when there's a war coming and we want to be saved for the enemies. Second time is a more in the times of celebration when we're offering sacrifices during the holidays, we also below the trumpets on joyous occasions. Okay, the Rambam now comes and he lists this as a mitzvah. And he says in mitzvah nuntet, mitzvah 59, he says, 
היא שציוונו לתקוע בחצוצרות במקדש עם הקרבת כל קורבן מקורבני המועדים. So he says we need to blow the trumpets in the Beit HaMikdash when we're offering the sacrifices on the holidays. And he says, וכן, I'm skipping a few lines, he says, וכן אנו מצווים לתקוע בחצוצרות בעיתות הצורך והצקות צרות שנצעק לפני השם יתעלה. So he says, second time that we need to blow the trumpets is any time that there's times of trouble. In other words, it's not only war, but any time that we have a certain need, certain times of trouble, and we're praying to Hashem, we also need to blow the trumpets. Okay, two times that we need to blow the trumpets, and he says this very briefly in the uh, short Minyan HaMitzvot. He says, You blow the trumpets on the sacrifices and during times of trouble. Now we go to the Mishneh Torah. Where is the Mitzvah of located? In Hilchot Ha'aniyot, the Halachot of Fastings. And he says here, Hilchot Ha'aniyot, Mitzvah Ta'seachat, Ve'hi Lizok Lifnei Hashem, Bechol Et Sarah Gdola Shelo Tavro Al Hatzibur. He says, what is the Mitzvah? To call out to Hashem any time that there is a time of trouble that comes on, that we pray would not come on the Tzibur, on, on the community. Okay, not even mentioning the chatzotzrot, just says to pray to Hashem. Okay, and certainly no mention of sacrifices in the Beit HaMikdash or anything of the sort. And in the Halachot, he gives a little bit more explanation. He says, Mitzvah tasem in Torah, lizok ulariyah b'chatzotzrot al kol tzara shetavol atzibur, the mitzvah is to call out to Hashem and to blow the trumpets on any trouble that comes. כלומר, כל דבר שייצר לכם, כגון בצורת ודבר והרבה וכיוצא בין זעקו אליהם דרילו. Whatever it is, famine, a plague, locust, call out to Hashem and blow the trumpets. And he explains what the reason for this is. דבר זה מדרכי התשובה הוא, שבזמן שתבוא צרה ויזעקו עליה ויריעו, ידוע כל שבגלל מעשיהם הרעים הוא רע להם, וזהו שיגרום להם להסיר הצרה מאליהם. In other words, this is something that's connected to fundamental beliefs, that when a trouble comes upon you, you have to realize that this is a call to you to correct your ways, that you're not behaving properly, that you're sinning, and this is a call to you to do tshuva, and this is the correct response uh, when trouble comes. Um, and he adds here, And we also fast um, as part of this repentance. We fast and we pray to Hashem, okay? And here, no mention of the korbanot, the blowing of the trumpets in the korbanot is mentioned later on in Klam Mikdash. Okay, so here the difference is completely glaring. In Sefer HaMitzvot, the mitzvah is what? Blow the trumpets. When do you blow the trumpets? Two occasions. One occasion is when there's trouble, one occasion where there is celebration of sacrifices. You could have argued maybe the Rambam should have listed it as maybe two separate mitzvot. Maybe blow the trumpets, one mitzvah to blow the trumpets in times of trouble, one time to blow it in the times of the korbanot on the chagim. Okay, but he decides to list it as one mitzvah, probably because in both cases you're blowing the trumpets that there should be a, a zikaron lifnei Hashem. But all of a sudden you come to the halachot and the mitzvah completely changes. The uh, idea of blowing in the holidays sort of gets mitigated and it's only mentioned in passing somewhere. And now the entire mitzvah shifts on um, praying to Hashem uh, when there's times of trouble. And within that also blow the trumpets, but sort of the focus changes completely on how do you respond when there's times of trouble, you should realize that this is a call for you to do tshuva and you should pray to Hashem. Okay, how did this shift occur? Okay, so we're out of time, so I'll just say very briefly. So again, this mitzvah is mitzvah 59. Again, if you look, 59 in Sefer HaMitzvot, what is it grouped under? Again, korbanot. Why? Same idea. If you look in the psukim itself, the trumpets appear equally when there is a war and also when there is korbanot. So if you're looking for where is the mitzvah connected to the psukim, it appears by korbanot, so that's where the Rambam listed it in his list of Sefer Mitzvot. He listed it amongst all the mitzvot that have to do with Korbanot. But now, when he's coming to the Mishneh Torah, 
He's trying to, again, create it as a whole category under which he can subsume a whole set of arachot. So here again, he's employing the philosophical outlook. And he's saying, okay, the Torah told us to blow the trumpets. But let's analyze it. One of the times that I need to blow the trumpets is when there's a war coming. Well, what is behind that? Why am I blowing the trumpets? I'm blowing the trumpets to be remembered before Hashem. So essentially, what's the blowing of the trumpets trying to achieve? It's a call out to Hashem. In other words, we're trying to amplify our voices before God. So what do we need to do? We need to pray to God. And on top of that, we're trying to sort of amplify our voices even more. So we're taking an instrument, a trumpet, and blowing. But ultimately, even the blowing of the trumpets is a call out to God. What is behind that? Something very, a fu very fundamental belief that when things occur in the world and bad things occur, it's not a random occurrence. God is controlling the events. Hashem is controlling the events. And if something wrong is happening, that means that we need to repent and we need to fix our ways. So this is something very fundamental. So in essence, the mitzvah of the trumpets is actually not just about the trumpets. It's a very, it's, it has a, it's teaching us a proper belief. In other words, how we should understand why troubles are occurring in the world. So that's why if you go to the Moreh Nebuchim, it's subsumed under the mitzvot that are connected to fundamental beliefs. And this now becomes now a sort of much more than just the trumpets. It's how you respond to trouble. How do you respond to it? You respond to it by praying. You respond to it by fasting. You respond to it by doing tshuva, trying to correct your ways. And now the mitzvah, the chatzot has turned into a much broader category of a mitzvah, which is how you respond uh, when there's times of trouble under which, and that serves as the four-way work for the entire all the halachot, a fasting, which is a sense, the halachic formulation of how you respond uh, to tzavot. So again, we see how sort of the Rambam was shifting from sort of the limited definition of just how it appears to the mitzvah to a whole broader category of halacha, all based on the hashkafa, uh, the philosophical understanding of the mitzvah in sort of in a wider uh, way. Okay, anybody have any questions or comments? Uh, I have a question with regards to the blowing of the trumpets. Yes. It seems like the mitzvah is not just a single act of blowing, but it's mm -hmm. the, there's also a, the, the element of collective teshuvah. Right. Is that right? Yes, yes, for sure. In other words, yes. in other words, so it's almost like a means to an end. Technically, the mitzvah is to blow the trumpets, but the blowing of the trumpets is not on its own. It has to be part of a larger effort of the public to try to respond collectively to what's happening, collectively and also on an individual level, by praying and midrabanan also by fasting and everything that's done. That, you know, there's a whole list there of what you, you should do. When, yeah. Yeah. Um, to follow up on that, why wouldn't he categorize it in Hilchot Teshuvah? What? Uh, because again, this is this is where it's sort of connected. Because ultimately, um is something that appears on the calendar. In other words, you have uh, first of all certain setaniot that you always have. Like we have upcoming, we had Yudzayin B'Tamuz Tisha So that's subsumed under Anchotaniot. And also, there are all kinds of guidelines of the taniot that you need to do when, let's say, there's famine or a plague. There's a whole prescription. We don't we don't do it so much anymore. But originally, this was done that they would have a whole list of fast days that they would set up in certain procedures. So even though that's all part of tshuva, it's sort of because it's something which is positioned on the calendar. That's why it appears in Sefer uh, Zmanim under a whole new section of Adichotani. But it's a, it's a unique type of tshuva, which is a response to an occurrence. Mm -hmm. It could be a occurrence which is historical, like the the um, you know, when we fast for the Tisha B'Av, for the uh, destruction of the temple, it's not an occurrence that occurred now, but it's an occurrence that occurred in the past, but we are sort of still under it because, you know, the Beit HaMikdash is not built, and it could be a contemporary occurrence as well. Yes, please. The context um, that you, I think it was in Bamidbar, wasn't it in the times of Milchama? I'm talking about the Chatzot Serot, right? So, yes, in, so, so why isn't it um, sort of under that category of, I don't know, Hilchot um, Yeah, there is Hilchot Melachim Milchamotem, but according to the Rambam, Milchama is just an example 
of trouble. So it could be milchama, it could be a pandemic, right? It could be locust. So it makes more sense to have it as its own category because it's not unique to, to war. War is it's correct, that that's the example of the but it's not unique to war. War is sort of just an example according to his interpretation. Brilliant. Okay. Okay, thank you. Diane so Livnat, thank you so, so much for that. I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely a topic that I, I personally needed a lot more clarification on, so I'm so glad that the RAF provided that. We look very, very much forward to having you part of the Habura um, going ahead. So we will be bothering you with more requests. Um, so thank you again, everybody. Thank you for joining. And uh, please do reach out to myself and Avi if you have any questions. And we hope to see you all next week for part two, Halakhic Frameworks with Senior Rav Joseph Dweck. Everybody, Laila Tov, thank you. Diane Livnat, again, thank you very much. See you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bet Midrash. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast player. Don't forget to rate and review. Have a wonderful day.